0: Talking history. This is News Talk.
1: We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender.
2: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The
0: strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small
2: step for man, one
0: diaphragm for big guy. Argus,
1: Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, it's a special Halloween edition as we find out about how Dracula was created in Dublin, his remarkable longevity and why we have such an enduring fascination with horror. And then later in the show, we'll be finding out about the Irish origins of Halloween and asking whether it's true that the Irish even invented the special holiday. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we looked at the life, work and legacy of the artist Sarah Purser and found out why it took so long for her to achieve the recognition she deserved. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show though with Dracula. Bram Stoker's novel Dracula has captivated readers and film fans for more than a century. The Dublin City Council Bram Stoker Festival celebrates and honours one of our most famous writers and welcomes hundreds of thousands of people to the city every year for deadly adventures that playfully celebrate Stoker's work and the Dublin of his time. And tomorrow at 10am and noon you can join Dacre Stoker, the internationally acclaimed author and great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker, to have an interactive literary workshop where he'd be able to unlock the secrets of Dracula's creation, dissecting rare replica papers borrowed from esteemed libraries and archives worldwide. And I'm delighted to welcome Dacre Stoker, as I say, the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker, to the show tonight. Dacre, you're very welcome.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's always wonderful to be back in this, this wonderful city, Bram Stoker's home city. So can you tell us first of all about the Bram Stoker Festival? It started in 2012. Yeah, it was, that was the 100th anniversary of Bram's death and the family was really behind the celebration of his 100th anniversary. And, and we encouraged the leaders of this fine city to, to do something on a larger scale. And, and they did. And what's and wonderful, it's not just literary, it's not just film, it's something for everybody.
1: And for example, at the Abbey Theatre, uh, they're having Dracula: Journey into Darkness, where they're having a stage reading of the first four chapters...
0: Isn't that great? I mean, and and it is a reading, but it's dramatised. And and I've seen the rehearsals. It's wonderful. It's really, really good.
1: Now, your own contribution, uh, and it's been running all weekend and again tomorrow, you're dissecting Dracula and you have these wonderful reproductions of really the primary sources behind the creation of this
0: enduring classic. It's right. There's not much left behind. Bram didn't write an autobiography, but he did leave his notes, and they ended up by some mystery in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. So I'm bringing about 30 pages of these and other rare documents to help people understand what went into the research and the writing of Dracula, what the little secrets were, what Bram changed here and there, where he got these ideas from, in a sort of a self-discovery. Rather than just lecture at people, I'm going to be helping them go through the process and find some of these hidden words on pages that... The name Dracula jumps out or Whitby or the Demeter or some of the things from the excised early chapters of the novel as well
1: because it's incredible you see i have some of the the documents in front of me you have his handwriting you have the creative process right there and as you say when he comes up with the name dracula and when he comes up with the, the names of the characters and even some ideas for some early chapters that didn't make the final the final version so it's it's really an insight into the creative mind the genius behind
0: the story you know every author goes through you know many different takes Uh, And his background research is something that we don't know about. You normally only get the finished product. And so here we pull back the curtain and we see what was Bram thinking about when he started writing in 1890? What were some of the original ideas? And he had very different characters that were listed, but he he sort of had three different takes on this. And you could sort of see the refined process of different characters, different places. I mean, at one time, many people know the American Quincy Morris, you know, evolved out of Bram Stoker, and Henry Irving's relationship with Buffalo Bill Cody. And you could see that happen on these pages. And then he had the guy going over to Transylvania in the middle of the story. Well, he didn't end up doing that in the finished version. So I look in that and say, why didn't he do that? What was he thinking of? Why did he change this? What are the female characters doing? You know where do they come from? So it's an evolution, really, when you see in one hundred and twenty five pages, and I've brought the best thirty of them in to share with with the folks at the Bram Stoker Festival at in Dublin Castle.
1: Why do we love Dracula so much? Why has the story captivated and entranced readers and not just readers of the book but also uh, uh, audiences of 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 various film adaptations. It's a story that continues to inspire, entertain, and, and intrigue people?
0: That, that's the big question. You know, when you really consider something he started in, in 1890. Now, he didn't, read, he didn't write the first vampire novel. Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, John Polidari, and J. Malcolm Reimer beat him to that one. But he really refined what was a myth at the time, dating back to the 17th and 18th century around Europe, people believed vampires were real. And Bram Stoker touched on that. The one interview that I found, he mentioned 12 different countries where he found the vampire myth. So what he did is he refined that myth and attached it to real names of real people and real characters. And then, of course, he packaged it in a way that this novel really transcended literature. As you mentioned, it's gone onto stage, onto screen, Halloween costumes, products, you know, it's a it's a small world, you know. Product really from from a financial standpoint, but it just keeps on intriguing people. What is it about the vampire? Is it immortality that we all think about at some time, or is it the allure of this somewhat sexual, powerful man that has evolved out of Bram's original work? I, I really don't know the answer, but I will tell you this: I think it means different things to different people worldwide. And that's why it's so enduring. It's not just a single element that we get used to and then discard after you've known it. Dracula is that gift that keeps on giving because we just don't fully understand the whole premise for it. And you've done some wonderful work on
1: Dracula. And one thing that really intrigues me is the fact that it took so long for it to be recognised and hailed as a literary classic that people kind of turned up their noses at it. It was just seen as a as a popular entertainment. And it took quite a considerable time before its literary merits were acknowledged.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And it's sort of frustrating to think that horror has taken a backseat for quite a while. Really, it was 1962, I think, was the date when Oxford University deemed it a classic. And, and when that happened, immediately the scholarly world took it seriously and started using it for, you know, basis for people to write their master's thesis and their doctoral thesis. Well, of course, by then, it had already taken off in the film world. And that's another way of sort of an acknowledgement of its credibility in popular culture. Bela Lugosi on screen in 31 and Christopher Lee, you know, seven or eight different versions in the 50s, 60s. So then it becomes a firm imprint. And I think, you know, one hand helps the other. The literature side of it, helps it get turned into film and popular culture, well, it gets into popular culture, people start going back to the book and reading it. And I've been, you know, lucky enough to capitalize and write a prequel to it myself, Dracul with J.D. Barker, and a sequel, of the Undead with Ian Holt, and they both have been international bestsellers because I go back to the original source and use those notes in writing the books that helped Bram make his masterpiece. And why do you think it has proved so
1: enduring on the, the cinematic screen? Because as you say, all these various different versions going back really to the very beginning of cinema and some more successful than others, some truer to the novel than others. When Francis Ford Coppola did his, it was very much Bram Stoker's Dracula that he was making. And um, why? Because, why? you know, people who have never read the book have seen some version of
0: Dracula. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's over 700 movies with a Dracula figure in it. Uh, the book's never been out of print, so it travels all over the world. But why the changes? Well, I'll, I'll give you a short sort of timeline. Bram's Dracula was nothing like the Dracula you see in the films today. His Dracula was a ma- man in black out of the grave, not sexual, not debonair. But when he got onto stage in 31 with Lugosi, stagegoers, theatergoers, excuse me, would require somebody who is handsome and attractive. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stayed in their seats. So then the the change was on. And the sexualization, the romanticization of this character. And you mentioned the 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula that Francis Ford Coppola directed, Jim Hart, who I've spoken to many times on this. We've done presentations together. He said, at this time in 92, I needed to make it a, a romantic movie. And we stuck, he was fairly, probably 60% faithful to the novel. But he introduced a whole idea of, of a reincarnated love interest for, the, for Dracula. Nothing to do with Bram Stoker's story, but it was wonderful. And and that is that, again, the gift that keeps giving is that people who are creative will pick up on something that Bram left them. Bram left us a colonel, and he didn't really define that character all that detailed. He left him in the minds of the readers. So therefore, the minds of screenwriters and other other authors can develop it in different ways and not, you know, look like they're straying too much. Now it does go a little bit crazy when vampires sparkle with Stephanie Meyer and her things, but still, that's okay. That's an homage to something Bram Stoker started here in Dublin, and it's just gone on, spread around the world.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Bram Stoker or Abraham Stoker. He was born in Dublin and Clontarf in 1847. So he was in the middle of the Great Irish Famine.
0: What was his early life like? Well, it, it was pretty miserable, really. Uh, born in black, forty-seven, as you mentioned. So to be born in those days, it wouldn't have been more like looking out the window to the the Walking Dead or Zombie Land. But he himself was a sickly young child himself, and so for the first seven years, it's rather a, a mystery. We really don't know what ailed him, but uh, but but I think it had to do with respiratory allergies and asthma. That's that's my theory. But I also think he was possibly bloodlet by one of his uncles. So I think it was fairly traumatic. And he does say in the one book that he mentioned where he wrote about Henry Irving, in my childhood I was very sickly. I didn't know what it was like to stand up for the first seven years. And the the stories that I was told proved fruitful in their kind in later years. What he's saying, understated is, what he went through was probably pretty miserable. The stories he was told by his mother, by his nanny, Irish folklore – Uh, These types of things were not rosy by any stretch of the imagination. But I also know one story he was told by his mother about her account of the cholera epidemic in 1832 in Sligo, which was horrific. She mentioned misdiagnosis of of the people, premature burial, and a neighbor actually crawling out of the grave. So I think his young mind was affected by this to create a very dark, let's say fertile, (laughs) sense of imagination for the young boy that went on later years to write the story. And you mentioned there about the uncle and what was it that you, he might bloodlet? Is it? I, I think that uh, Edward Alexander Stoker would have gone to try to help his, his young nephew and, and bloodlet him. And back in those days, bloodletting was a form of fixing everything. They would leech the, the patient or cut the patient, take the bad blood out. Of course, they didn't know what they were taking out at the time that some of the good antibodies were there. And then they patched them up give them a mixture of oil and claret to cleanse the inside. But what re- you know re- really was happening, I think, is another form of, of sort of terror for Bram because in chapter four in Dracula, Bram actually mentioned when Jonathan Harker went in and tried to kill Dracula when he found him in his coffin, but he, he slipped with the shovel and he said, there he lies like a huge leech gorged with his repletion. I think that was firsthand knowledge that Bram had experienced himself. And if not, it makes a heck of a good story.
1: And what you really see is the the stories that he was told as a child, the 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 trauma that I suppose he was experiencing, and these stories going back to the cholera epidemic. You know what was happening with the famine, his own sickly childhood. That all of that is is influencing and shaping and forming the fertile
0: imagination of young Bram Stoker. Well, absolutely. I mean, you, you've got to think about how all of us create our memories and create the thoughts for the things we do. Now. I don't go that deep into Poe and Lovecraft, but I do that there was some substance abuse, we might say, at some point that affected their writing. In Bram's case, I think it was possibly some of these childhood experiences. And then later on, he did incredible research that confirmed many of those ideas. And in between that, he was a champion athlete at Trinity, where he actually was the head of the fill and became a philosopher. And the HIST,
1: and, you know, the, and the, two, HIST. the two great debating societies. And he was, so tell us about his Trinity years, because it really was quite remarkable the way he was, you know, such a, he was an athlete. He was a, uh, you know, ch- you know, he seemed champion debater involved in all these different
0: student activities. Yeah, today we'd call him a big man on campus. And he was, I was lucky enough to be invited by the HIST to, to give an address to the 253rd. Uh, gathering. And, and uh, I talked about Bram as a person and how he evolved out of that sickly young child, most likely, as I have looked into, uh, lacking in self-confidence. He grew up to be very tall, as you you would see, a gangly teenager. But he came into his own with this wonderful Trinity education and, and this very stimulating background. And and as you say, the fill and the hist and debating and de- drama. And he also got a master's in mathematics later on. So all of this right here at Trinity, helped him become the person that he was. And as you extract, as I will be doing, dissecting Dracula, you see these philosophical thoughts about faith and truth and goodness. These things are implanted as in history, the history of Eastern Europe. He delves into that when he looks in these books about Vlad the Impaler and his historical background, makes the story seem real. So all of these things from those middle years really did affect him.
1: And he also seems to have been a remarkably social person and sociable and, and popular. He had a, a huge network of friends. And when you see him after college, it's a, through a lot of these friendships with people like uh, Henry Irving that he is connected to to theatrical networks and, and, and literary networks pretty much all around the world.
0: That's right. I mean, the world was smaller. The, the Ill, um, literati was connected. He was good friends with Walt Whitman in the United States. Mark Twain was a neighbor of his who actually—I'm sure they had discussions about spirituality and faith. Bram actually took a quote of Mark Twain and inserted it into the novel about believing in what you know to be untrue. He slid that into the novel. Um, So, yeah, he was was associated with the center of the universe being Henry Irving's manager in London. I mean, the theater that Stoker and Irving put on, the, the Lyceum, was elevated in the role of society. Irving was the first actor ever knighted and Bram Stoker got a lot of credit for that. But Bram also got to see Irving play the role of Mephistopheles on stage 27 years. And there is our devil coming out in, in an stage that Bram would see. That's part of the creation of his devil incarnate Vlad Dracula. So all of these things, everything we've been chatting about all work their way into the fabric of the novel. So what
1: did he become? Because he seems to have done different things. He started writing. What would,
0: how would you have described his profession? Well, I think there's no question he was known as the theatre manager, because Dracula and his other writings were not that popular until, sadly, after he died, 1912. So he was known as, for 27 years, the theatre manager of the most famous actor of his time, Henry Irving. Uh, He came to America eight times with the Lyceum Theater troupe. They became very popular and famous over in America. And, of course, all over uh, England and in the British Isles, they were very popular. He, He wrote the book when Irving died in 05, personal reminiscence of Henry Irving. It became the bestseller during Bram's life, not Dracula. But now we look back and people go, who's Henry Irving? And, boy, I know who Dracula is. So it's sort of ironic that the creature Bram created out of his time with Irving, that creature Dracula has become more popular than the creature. What I'm trying to do is help the creator get as popular as his creation Dracula. So look at the act of
1: creation then. When did he get the idea for this vampire story and how did it develop and evolve?
0: Well, you know, as as I say, I think the idea was germinating for many years, but it didn't actually get serious until the summer of 1890 when he went to Whitby. He could only really write when he was not encumbered by all the activity at the Lyceum Theater. And we do know from the records in the notes that I'll be presenting folks again, that he went to Whitby and he walked into the library and he checked out a book by William Wilkinson called The Principalities of Wallachia, Moldavia. And and what he saw from that, he wrote in his notes, Dracula in the Wallachian language means devil. And I think that the image of Irving jumped out of him on the page. Here's my guy. He reads about Vlad Dracula the Impaler and sees the backstory of a vicious, bloodthirsty leader, with a with in a, in a good region. He reads another book, Land Beyond the Forest, by a Scottish writer, Emily Gerard, which gives him the playbook for what a vampire is. The names Strigoi, Nosferatu, how to kill a vampire. These were all superstitions that a Scottish writer from Jedborough, who was living now in Austria and then moved to Transylvania with her husband, provided Bram all the, all the information he needed. Bram just needed to pull it together like a puzzle and place it and package it nicely. That's how Dracula really was, was invented on the shelves of the London Library and the Whitby Library. So both of those places were we, where he did his research, but he didn't actually write the book until starting in 19... excuse me, 1893, up in Cruden Bay, Scotland, north of Aberdeen, where he took his further summer holidays.
1: And what's extraordinary in the work that you do dissecting Dracula is you have, in a way, the, the rule book that he creates for vampires and for Dracula about the things they can do, the things they can't do, things like their reflections and uh, uh, how they're seen and uh, can you cross water and so on, that uh, he kind of worked out his own. He created the the rules for this fictional universe
0: before he started writing. And, and that's so typical Bram. He was such a detail-oriented guy. That The thing I forgot to mention, because I'll be doing these chats in Dublin Castle, he was a clerk of Petty Sessions in Dublin Castle and wrote a manual for all the clerks around the country. So these details that were in Bram's blood came out when he was doing his research, and he did. He created a manual, four pages of these notes that say memo on the top, and he collected all these different traits from different sources, mostly Emily Girard. It said, what a vampire can and cannot do. And to this day, it lives most vampire authors go back to Bram's playbook and use those as their traits to make it an authentic vampire
1: Well tonight we are talking history and we are talking about well in a very Halloween themed special we are talking about the creation of probably the most iconic horror figure of all time and that is of course Count Dracula we're going to take a quick break now but then when we come back I'll be continuing my discussion with Dacre Stoker the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker about the publication of Dracula and. How, in the century and maybe 30 years uh, since publication, it became such an enduring classic. So, stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back. We're Talking History and tonight we have a Halloween special as we look at the creation of the enduring horror classic Dracula. And I'm rejoined by Dacre Stoker, the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker. Later in the show, we're going to be finding out about the Irish origins of Halloween and whether the Irish, in fact, invented the holiday as well. But uh, Dacre, continuing our chat Tell us then about the publication of Dracula. When was it
0: published and what was the immediate reaction? Well, it was published in 1897 by Archibald Constable in London. And uh, later on, just two years later in America, so reviews began to come out. And it's really funny to sort of track that because initially researchers have said, oh, it was met with mixed reviews. What does that really mean? As a journalist, you can say, well, it was, you know, a little bit good and bad. But what further research has said is, yes, mixed reviews are right, but of the five reviews that were found, only one was was bad, and bad to the point that how could this Bram Stoker have written such a horrific novel? The other ones were, oh, wow, this is sensational, but the subject matter is pretty gruesome. So were people really ready, even after Frankenstein had been out 70 years before and other vampire novels? Bram scared the heck out of people, and the reviews showed this. That bringing this count from the Far East to, into London, almost touching upon the whole idea of reverse colonization, was striking a nerve to the readers in London, bringing in this creature that was buying up homes and spreading disease. So it struck a nerve. The reviewers picked up on this. Years later, a researcher, a friend of mine, John Edgar Browning, found over 90 reviews in the first 30 years that Dracula was out. And even though they were mixed, the percentage of the sort of bad reviews, there was only two or three. There were 60 glowing reviews that this was an incredible advancement in literature. And again, how could this man that we've got to know as the very upstanding and sort of conservative theater manager write such a thing? So it was sort of shocking to people that Bram Stoker could do this and kind of rock the literary world, but he certainly did.
1: Bram Stoker then lived for another 15 years and how did he view his creation in, in the remainder of his life? Was he proud of it? Was he disappointed that it perhaps it hadn't become uh, a greater success in his own lifetime? Did he think that this would be how he would
0: be remembered? Yeah, you know, that, that is one of the huge questions that I, I look for. He didn't keep a diary that kept any of those thoughts. There is only one letter that I've ever found by his mother, congratulating him on, his, on the writing of Dracula. There was one actually by author Conan Doyle as well. So I can only assume to answer this question that I think he was satisfied that he got the story out there, satisfied that it was a work well done. I mean, it took him seven years to do it, but he got on with his writing. He didn't stop at Dracula. He wrote 12 other novels. And so I think that he was maybe spurned on by this and we really don't know how he personalized or accepted whatever success was there. But, and, and I find that pretty sad because that book really to this day is what defines Bram Stoker. And unless people start listening to me and I tell them about the other good stories, The Mystery of the Sea and The Water's Mao, Layer of the White Worm, uh, Jewel of Seven Stars, some really other good, good, well-written stories that some have been turned into movies as well.
1: We talked about how it took so long for the, the academic world and the literary world to recognise uh, the greatness of the novel and to see it as a classic. But in the same way, I wonder, do you think that Ireland and Dublin, given that he was a Dubliner, have been very slow in in recognising and celebrating this great achievement? Because I think if you were to ask people around the world, you know, where, you know, who was the, you know, you know, what nationality was the creator of Dracula or, or uh, you know, where where does the story originate? Or even ask Irish people. I don't think they would know that. We claim so many things that perhaps we don't have such a, a great connection with or the DNA isn't as clear. Here there's very obvious DNA and yet so many people, despite the great work of the festival, you know, we still maybe haven't fully reclaimed Bram Stoker's
0: Dracula? Not not as much as I would like. I still always do a little quiz, pop quiz to taxi drivers when I'm in Dublin. Have you heard about Bram Stoker? Oh, yes, wasn't he born in Clontarf? And he was an Englishman. No, no, he was living in England when he wrote it. But he was truly an Irishman and a proud Irishman all his life. And he kept those roots. So my hat's off, really, to Dublin City Council to get behind the festival to help spread the word. I mean, Irish people have traveled around the world to look for different contributions they can make in life. And, and now let's let's really celebrate Bram, a, a proud Irishman, and what he's done for the world of horror. Even though it's horror, it is literature and you know, being embraced that way. But boy, has he changed the world of popular culture. And I think he should be celebrated for that. And he is being celebrated. The folks that run the Bram Stoker Festival, all aspects of, of, of really Bram's life not just the writing of Dracula, are highlighted. Bram Stoker was Irish, but
1: is the story Irish? Or I, I wonder, does it matter that he was Irish and born in Dublin or given that it's not set in Ireland? I suppose, what are the
0: Irish links to it? Well, well, there are, and, and it's interesting because I've, I've listened, I've sat on panels with, with uh, Irish scholars who will make connections to, for instance, the Gaelic term, you know, Dracula. Bad Blood, could Bram have heard that? Most likely, it's very possible. Is that a, and a, you make a connection when you get, when he saw that book in, in the Whitby Library and goes back into the depths of his mind and, and hears that name. But also all the Irish mythology and folklore, you know, you people here have all kinds of vampire stories and life taking stories, cautionary tales that Bram would have been aware of. Du is is one of them, uh, An Aberhecht, I won't be able to pronounce it, but you've got your own vampires that I'm sure Bram was inspired by, or at least was aware of. But also there is the whole idea of this count, this sort of overbearing landlord type thing that, again, the Irish are used to with with the British being in charge of so many things and treating people as lowly sort of gypsies like Count Dracula did. So there are, I think, unwritten or, or maybe uh, aspects of the novel that Bram would have absorbed organically and just came out of his writing without having to put them in his notes because they were there. They were part of his upbringing, part of his culture. So there is a lot of Irishness in the novel without it coming out in an, in an overt way. Tell us about the Oscar Wilde connection in terms of his wife. Well, yeah, there is. I mean, there's all this talk about, oh, did Bram steal Florence Belkin from Oscar Wilde? Um, he was actually very good friends with Willie Wilde. They were at Trinity together. And also Lady Jane Wilde was a literary mentor to Bram, and she was very important part of his life in urging him on with other literary soirees. What we really don't know about is, was Oscar Wilde, did he hold a grudge? We know that Florence and he were very close, and they they kept a friendship later on. And there are rumors, and I haven't seen anything that actually proves that Bram went to visit Oscar Wilde in prison, but he probably would have because he was that kind of a, of a good guy who would have done the right thing when, when some fellow writer is, is is in distress or down and out. So... It's hard to tell. People make lots of things, you know, competition between them, Dorian Gray versus Dracula. But I really think the, the, the interesting things that the Wild family did, even the father bringing back a mummy of a baby from Egypt, probably helped Bram with his ideas of the Lady of the Shroud and, and Jewel of Seven Stars, which are set in, e- set in Egypt. So I think there's some closeness to this family that is, is there. I just don't know the exact details
1: of it. And Bram Stoker very much seems to be someone ahead of his time that I think he would have fitted into the 21st century very well. He, was, he had very progressive views on women and equality. Uh, he had a very interesting take on the world that he very much hadn't inherited all of the, the prejudices and beliefs of his
0: age. That's a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up because I really, I, I describe him as an open-minded, advanced thinker. He was interested in modern technology. And in those days, it was things like the typewriter, the recording um, phonograph, all things used in Dracula, the searchlight. But he was a bit of a feminist, and he got that from his mother, He was also very interested in mental health issues. That's why Renfield made its way in the story, his brother. Sir William Thornley Stoker, head of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, helped him with all the medical aspects of the novel, all the very advanced trans- blood transfusions and brain trephination surgery. He was telling us things like, you know, accept new science. That's going to help us sort of cleanse our way and eliminate some of the old, old mysteries in life that we need to move on from.
1: So tell us then about Dissecting Dracula. Uh, it was running on Friday, on Saturday, and again earlier today at 2pm and 4pm. But it's also on tomorrow, uh, Monday at 10am and uh, at noon. Uh, tickets, €22. Euro. It's in the Pottle Room, the Printworks, Dublin Castle on Dame Street as part of the Bram Stoker Festival. Uh, what should, If people are interested in going, what should they do? Turn up or can they book tickets online?
0: Well, you've got to book the tickets online. I think there are some left still, but it's been one People are amazed with sort of in their one hour walking through a process that I've gone through in 12 years to sort of look at these notes, these source materials, look at how bad Bram's handwriting is and try to decipher it. But I give them the answers as we go. But it helps you on really as sort of a, a stroll through Bram's research and writing of this incredible novel and see where it all started. It's clear your enthusiasm,
1: your passion, the pride you have for uh, the work of your great-granduncle Bram Stoker. Does criticism hurt you if you read today now someone saying, "Oh, Bram Stoker's Dracula isn't as good as you know people are saying," or "I don't like it compared to these other things"? Uh, does that does that is that a blow to
0: you, or are you sufficiently removed from it? No, my, my self-confidence has has uh, survived that. I've, I was an athlete and a coach myself. We're used to ups and downs. And that's just normal that people will, you know, get their opportunity on social media or writing reviews to sort of look at things in a critical eye and look for, you know, look for bringing people down. But it's fine. Bram Stoker has survived the test of time for now 127 years, and I'm here to help promote him for the next some odd years. And we can take the good and the bad.
1: And do you think Dracula will never die in a hundred years time? Will there still be shows about about the creation, about the book, about the character?
0: He's immortal. He's going to live on. Trust me, he'll be there. Just like Halloween
1: itself. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to Dacre Stoker, the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker, dissecting Dracula. has been taking place all weekend as part of the Bram Stoker Festival, supported by Dublin City Council and run by Dublin City Council. Really, a quite brilliant tribute to one of our most famous writers in this country. And Dacre, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for your time and your interest. We'll be back with the Irish origins of Halloween right after this break. Well, welcome back to Talking History. It's Halloween on Tuesday, and so we're delving back to the origins of Irish traditions and exploring how Samhain became Halloween. Irish ghost stories and funerary traditions travelled with the Irish diaspora and often became entangled with local customs to form entirely new traditions over the centuries and there's a wonderful tour taking place in the Epic Museum uh, and it's it's been on all weekend taking part again uh, tomorrow and on Tuesday uh, you can get a ticket online and it also gives you entry to the Irish Immigration Museum and a bespoke tour and there you can learn more about the dark man a malevolent harbinger of death who served as the inspiration for the headless horsemen of Sleepy Hollow. And you can also find out how the local practice of burying corpses with a stake through the heart influenced the writings of Bram Stoker, uh, who we talked about earlier in the show. And to talk about this wonderful tour, I'm delighted to be joined by the historian in residence at the Epic Museum, Dr Catherine Healy. Catherine, you're very welcome to the show.
2: Hello, Patrick. Delighted
1: to be here. So tell us about what's happening. It's Ghost, Ghouls and Goody Glover Day, Mm. uh, the Irish origins of Halloween. Uh, Talk to me about the concept behind it.
2: Sure. Uh, I guess Halloween is quite a misunderstood festival i mean we all know the origins of of christmas of st patrick's day but the idea of halloween as a predecessor to a Celtic festival isn't as well understood. So that will be the focus um, of, of our tour, which uh, will be running until Tuesday. And um, we'll be looking at some of the customs associated um, with sound as it was practiced in um, pre-Christian Ireland. And um, the fact that a lot of the things we associate with Halloween today have their roots in, in Irish folklore and mythology.
1: So is it too much to say that the Irish invented Halloween, or did we contribute a huge amount of the DNA to it?
2: I mean, we have a reputation at Epic as claiming everything is an Irish export, <laughs> um, but in this case, I think um, it, it's it's a fair assessment to say that the Halloween that we have today does certainly owe a lot to to old Irish traditions um, as it would have been traditionally practiced um, in Ireland. Um, I mean, a lot as I said, a lot of the customs um do have uh, continued resonance. Um sound in Ireland marked the end of um the harvest season, but it was also, even in um Celtic times, strongly associated with um the supernatural. Um the Celts believed in um in, in an afterlife, in um uh, another world where the souls of the departed um would have gone to. And sound was the period in which um, the the window between our living world and that realm beyond was seen to break down and you had supernatural um creatures um roaming the earth um, from the night of the of the 31st um and even a lot of the foods that we associate um with halloween have their origins in in um in celtic tradition um, apples for example played an important function in in um in Celtic um, mythology around sound, they would have been often buried beneath ground to feed the souls of, of, um, of the dead um, and nuts too playing, played an important role in, in Celtic harvest um, celebrations. Um, so obviously the, the character of Halloween today is, is quite different um, but, and it changes character as it crosses the Atlantic and um, to America and obviously becomes a lot more commercialised over the course of the 20th century um, but some of that old character remains nonetheless.
1: And what's incredible is that I think in Ireland, we've uh, taken back a lot of the things from from America, mm-hmm. things like pumpkins and uh, even so much that you see out now uh, is kind of uh, imported from America. But then, of course, we exported a lot mm-hmm. of it to America as well. So it's only really returning home. And I was astonished to see that even things like bonfires and the costumes and the food, that th- this all goes back to, to pre-Christian iterations mm-hmm. of mm,
2: That's right. Uh, I mean we think people would have dressed up in in costumes um in, in pre-Christian Ireland around sound to um avoid being possessed by by some of these otherworldly creatures that were supposedly um roaming the land um around this time of year. Um you had the sound ritual of of lighting communal fires as well. Um that would have typically been been led by druids. Um you would have had ambers redistributed to relight the um the the hurts in, in people's homes. Um Bonfires also played an important um, function, given that this is the end of the harvest season. It was used to discard leftover produce um, and for the, the bones of, of, of animals that would have been culled around that time of year. Um, I mean, I should add the, the caveat that the Celts didn't typically keep written records. So um, a lot of what we know about um, sound customs um, comes from, from archaeology, from, from oral tradition that would have been recorded much much later, um, typically by Christian monks, um, but yeah, some of those traditions then cross um over to um to the states um, in, in the wake of the great famine.
1: So it is extraordinary that as, as the Irish emigrated to the United States and as you say, especially uh, during and after the famine, they brought with them these sound traditions and then they were kind of reimagined and or extended in the United States becoming the, 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 the global Halloween that we all know and either love or hate today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, initially, um, Halloween customs would have been confined to, to those emigrant enclaves. Um, but uh, they're... I suppose uh, uh, adopted as as part of the bourgeois social calendar um, in the latter half of the nineteenth century, and um, particularly in in women's magazines. There's a, a boom in in uh, women's magazines publishing um, from the from the eighteen seventies. Halloween ghost stories, Halloween party guides become very popular. Um, I mean, if you look at American almanacs of the the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, there's no mention of of Halloween. Um, at all but it's in the decades after that um that great influx of of Irish um immigrants that you see it um being uh, popularized and um reframed as as a kind of english um custom and uh something to be you know uh, enjoyed in the the middle class parlor and um, it becomes i suppose feminized in in some ways associated with you know bourgeois etiquette and um and social practices, um, but it's also then an opportunity, I suppose, for, for young men and boys to go out and and, and cause mischief. Um, and um, I suppose this is also a period where a lot of holiday, a lot of other holidays in, in the states are becoming more domesticated. Um, and so, yeah, Halloween, I suppose, provides that social space for for transgression, um, which uh, which helps it it expand its appeal.
1: Now personally I love Halloween and my kids love Halloween and one thing I've noticed from my own childhood is I seem to remember Halloween was just one day of the year it was the 31st but now it's almost like a whole month and the decorations go up and the costumes and it's a a huge you know much I think bigger celebration now and looking at some of the the traditions i always associated the lanterns with just america and mm. uh, not really an irish thing but actually they have long historic irish roots as mm. well
2: that's right yeah there's a long tradition of um of lantern carving as as part of the irish halloween um, they that would have typically been been done with with turnips um so if you go to the mayo branch of the um national museum in castlebar you can see a very creepy looking turnip lantern, um, which they call a, a ghost lantern, and um, which would have been um used in, in Donegal around the turn of the twentieth century. Um, but then as Halloween is exported to America, pumpkin the pumpkin becomes the the preferred canvas. It's easily available. It's it's much easier to carve. Um, but even the, that term jack-o' lantern um has its roots in in um the old Irish um tale of a stingy Jack uh, who supposedly trick the devil was denied entry into both heaven and hell and was doomed to wander the earth um, with a with a turnip lantern um, for eternity, which is where you get the term, uh, Jack of the Lantern. Um, so again, uh, yeah, Irish Irish roots to that custom too.
1: So who was the dark man?
2: <laughs> the Duhalan, yeah, another um important figure um of Celtic mythology. Um he was considered the embodiment of the fertility god who supposedly um demanded um decapitation as a as a kind of blood sacrifice um, and there are endless uh, versions of of the dark man in European um mythology, but I suppose it it has particularly strong roots in Irish folklore. Um and yeah, an, an important figure um, associated with, um, with Halloween uh, as well.
1: So why, did, uh, why was there that tradition of sticking the, the stake through the heart when, mm. uh, when corpses were being buried? Because, you know, earlier we were talking to Dacre Stoker about uh, his ancestor, uh, 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 Bram Stoker, and mm. the creation of Dracula. And it's such an enduring uh, story and it's influenced the horror genre so much. But mm. again, that Irish tradition there, why, why would they have done that?
2: The idea was that uh, by by driving a stake into into a, a corpse you're preventing the the soul from wandering um so this would have um happened at a at a burial plot at, on Clonliffe Road um not far from from where um Bram Stoker grew up um a burial plot primarily for um people who had died by suicide and for 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 um for criminals um but yeah you, you see then that the influence of that in um Dracula when uh, plans are made to, to kill the Count by driving a stake through his heart um, to make sure he's he's truly dead.
1: So what about witches then and the crossover between Irish witches and then the, the witch trials and the, mm. uh, the the people, the women executed for witchcraft in the United States then? There are also links there.
2: Mm, absolutely, yeah. One of the um, people featured in our tour is um, Anne and Glover or, or Goody Glover, um, an Irish woman who was executed for witchcraft in 1688, just a few years before the um, the Salem witch trials. Um, she had been um, transported initially to to Barbados to work on a sugar plantation in the wake of um, the Cromwellian conquest, and um, eventually found her way um, to to Boston in the um, then Puritan dominated Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, and uh, her daughter worked for a local family in, in Boston, and the Goodwin family, um, and there was a dispute. Um, Anne stood up for her daughter, and shortly after, the four Goodwin children were said to start showing um, all manner of strange symptoms, behaving like, like animals, barking like dogs and so on. Um, and uh, Anne Glover is, is accused of, um, of witchcraft, um, interestingly. some of the symptoms that these these children claim to have are very similar to those that are cited by children at the the centre of the Salem um, witch hunt a few years later. So in many ways, this case provides a a narrative template um, for what's to come in in Salem just a few years after. Um, But... Glover is eventually um uh convicted of witchcraft um and is is executed um and it's 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 a very sad story she spoke very little english um there was a translator used in court um she appeared not to be of of sound mind um and uh, one of her most prominent accusers, Cotton Marr, writes about her very disparagingly in a book, um, uh, a best-selling book at the time, "Memorable Providences," published in 1689, and um, which, which details, um, which details that case. And Mather goes on to take, um, a leading role in in the Salem witch trials, and um, to just a few years later.
1: And how do you explain the hysteria over witchcraft? Do you think it was just you know, kind of a fear of the unknown or an Mm -hmm. anti-immigrant thing or an anti-woman thing or Mm -hmm. just the way you see it even now in the present day, something catches fire online or on social media and there's a kind of a, well, there's a witch hunt. There's Mm. a, the people just pile on to something without really understanding it and the fear becomes magnified.
2: Mm. I suppose the women who tend to be accused of witches tend to be outcasts, whether they're economically independent, whether they're in the case of Anne Glover, a, a working class Roman Catholic woman um, with, with poor command of English. Um, and usually women um, who, who have the charge of witchcraft leveled against them um, are single women or are widows. Anne Glover too was a widow. Um, she didn't have a husband there to advocate on, on her behalf. Um, so that made her um, especially vulnerable.
1: Now there is a wonderful place in County Ross Common that is under consideration to become a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's somewhere where, uh, in the past, it was a centre for Samhain celebrations.
2: Mm. That's yeah, that's right, Roth Crowan in um, Ross Common, which is today actually mostly buried under farmland, um, but it was a very important ancient site, um, measuring about four square miles. Um, It was a royal settlement um, where the the kings and queens of Connacht would have been inaugurated. um, And it's where a lot of people would have congregated um, for festivals like Sound, They would have feasted and and traded there, um, made ritual offerings. Um, And Rathcrowan is also where you find um, the so-called entry to hell, um, a cave system known as um, Awinagat, which was believed to open at Sound and um, provide a route for otherworldly creatures to emerge, so um, yes, it's it's currently under consideration as a UNESCO World Heritage Site um, as part of the Royal Sites um, of Ireland. Um, so I will I would imagine it will um, become uh, a lot more popular as a as a tourist destination. Should that happen, it's it's very easy to miss if you if you drive past it today.
1: Now, these tours that were taking place yesterday, again today and uh, uh, four o'clock tomorrow and on Tuesday, uh, people can do it. So if people want to take the tour and visit you at the Epic Museum, uh, go online and, and book a ticket.
2: That's right. Our website is epicchq.com
1: And Catherine, just a final question then about your role as the historian in residence. First of all, congratulations on the appointment mm-hmm. but uh, we, we had actually mentioned you in a, in a show a few weeks ago when we were talking about Ireland and slavery and the links with the Caribbean because of course Epic was doing the great exhibition there and talk to us about I suppose the work of Epic and the different types of stories you're telling at the museum.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, our purpose at Epic is to is to highlight, I suppose, the complexity of the Irish diaspora story, and to show that there is a lot more to that history than the the famine immigrants that we typically imagine when we when we think of of Irish emigration. Um, and as you mentioned, our current temporary exhibition surveys four centuries of connection between Ireland um, and the Caribbean, um, and there are some some fascinating case studies there from Irish plantation owners and and enslavers to Irish educators um Anglo-Irish governors of a number of uh, Caribbean colonies um and also the, the I mean there's some really rich links between Irish and and Caribbean literature too um we're delighted to also have a video uh, a video piece as part of that exhibition um exploring the experiences of people of Irish and Caribbean descent so again highlighting that um yeah, Irishness today um looks very different than what is 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 typically imagined um and there's a lot more diversity and richness there that people might think.
1: And finally then why do you think Halloween uh, continues to exert such a a hold on the popular imagination because you know back in the, in the in the days of sound you can understand it, you know, there was the connections with the crops and agriculture and the changing of the weather and the seasons and people were maybe more superstitious and uh their belief in maybe spirits in these other worlds, mm-hmm. the supernatural. But given where we are in the twenty first century and how much the world's has changed and ours mm-hmm. has changed, yet we still keep returning to these traditions, and it still continues to excite and mm-hmm. and intrigue us. Why is
2: that? Yeah, I I think I suppose the the community oriented nature of 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 Halloween that still exists, uh, you know, still make sure it still has a strong appeal. I, I guess, you know, we, we lead more atomized individual individualised lives um, tucked away in, in semi-Ds, in, in suburbs or in, um, you know, city centre flats. And Halloween is one a few times of year where people can go out on the, in the streets along with their neighbours and knock at, at other people's doors and, and get a welcome. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's a breaking down of barriers, I guess, which doesn't happen um, any other times of year.
1: Well, I think it's a wonderful breaking down of barriers. And absolutely wonderful to talk to Dr. Catherine Healy, who's the historian in residence at the Epic Museum, and they're hosting a wonderful series of tours called Ghost Schools and Goody Glover Day. And it's about the Irish origins of Halloween. It's on again tomorrow and on Tuesday at four PM. Just go to the Epic website and you can get your ticket as well as entry to the Epic Irish Emigration Museum. And Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. Well, that does bring us to the end end of a special halloween edition of talking history my thanks to my series producer Marisa sullivan to simon keane who produced this week and to peter malloy on sound we've got more debate and discussion next week so hope you can join us then we've been talking history good night